Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, new details emerge in embattled U.S. Senator Bob Menendez's federal bribery case. Allegations of a $35,000 diamond engagement ring pushing a COVID-19 testing lab and talk of a 007 phone. His team is now invoking the Swift defense. Then obviously Taylor Swift didn't you know, take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and act in the best interest of constituents that elect you. Plus, the state's parole system is under scrutiny after a new report says it's flawed and broken. It's like you're going in front of a firing squad. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. You're going in to plead for your life. Also, major changes in store if you test positive for COVID-19. Quarantine days may soon be over. By taking away all the precautions all at the same time, what we're messaging is that we're willing to risk some people's lives. And a huge sigh of relief in Atlantic City. The doors will remain open at its harm reduction and needle exchange center after a three-year battle. It's a landmark ruling because it marks a turn in how New Jersey is addressing the overdose crisis. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Wednesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. As embattled senior Senator Bob Menendez inches closer to his May federal corruption trial, prosecutors now say they've got a trove of new details to prove he was part of an elaborate bribery scheme. In a court filing this week, prosecutors allege Menendez didn't just get cash, gold bars, and a luxury car, but also a diamond engagement ring for his future wife, all part of an extensive list of bribes he and Nadine Menendez allegedly took in exchange for his political influence. According to the document, it didn't end there. The couple allegedly conspired to bilk New Jersey towns during the pandemic in a scheme involving a COVID-19 testing lab that was paying Nadine Menendez, who, according to the court filing, used a phone the couple dubbed 007 in an apparent reference to the James Bond character. There's also more details about the money investigators found during a raid on the Menendez home, thousands of dollars of cash stuffed in boots and in bags. Prosecutors say all of this is evidence in proving Menendez was aware of a corrupt quid pro quo. It comes as the U.S. Senator's defense team is requesting for his indictment to be dismissed, going so far as to invoke none other than Taylor Swift in their argument. Here to help us make sense of it all is former assistant U.S. attorney Chris Carmichione. Chris, thanks so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. So these are not new charges, but this is a new filing. What's the difference there, and why are we seeing prosecutors continually do this in the case? Well, the, the most recent filing is a response to the various motions that have been brought by the, the multiple defendants in the case. And they basically cover the motion to sever the case that pertains to Senator and Mrs. Menendez, uh, motion to dismiss the case for fail to state claims and the charges, 
a motion to suppress evidence that was seized in the various locations that were searched by the government, um, a Frank's hearing motion, which is basically an allegation that the government intentionally withheld material information from the magistrate judge that granted the warrant, and then finally a change of venue motion. So, so the flurry of activity you see is the government's response, their omnibus response to all of that, and then the various replies that the defendants have put in in, in reply to that response. So by divulging, uh, let's say, the uh, money involved with this uh, alleged diamond engagement ring or cash that was found during the first uh, raid of the home, money in boots and, and in bags on top of uh, coat hangers, these are details that the prosecutors are saying are reasons for why sh these shouldn't be dismissed? Yeah, the, of course the defense counsel and the defendants they would love to have these charges thrown out. Um, I think it's highly unlikely under these circumstances because the indictment is sufficiently detailed and pled. Um, and that's a decision for a jury to determine. They, they want all of that thrown out because it is quite, you know, nefarious allegations that are made. And the government came back and they and sprinkled in some additional facts that weren't in the, in the indictment just to reinforce the fact that they had probable cause that there's no grounds to dismiss, there's no grounds for a Frank's hearing, and all of the other arguments that the defendants through their counsel are making. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting tactic. I guess it, it, oftentimes defense counsel will try to throw out, get charges thrown out. But in doing so, what they're doing is they're really highlighting what the defense is going to be at trial, in, in effect, giving kind of a leg up to the government uh, in advance before you even get to the point of presenting to a jury. Well, and that was my next question. What does this tell us about what we can expect for the trial in May? Well, I guess what I can tell is the big centerpiece on the defense's arguments, the multiple defendants, is that the actions that were undertaken, there's no sufficient quid pro quo. In other words, there wasn't something of value in, received in exchange for taking official action or inaction. And they're basically saying there's, there's no agreement that forms the basis of a corrupt bribe scheme. And in the case of Senator Menendez, He's couching his defense under the speech and debate clause of the U.S. Constitution, saying this is all acts that, that I'm immune from taking. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. If you can prove a corrupt arrangement, which is the whole purpose of the indictment, then you could lose that immunity. The other defendants can't bring those arguments, but that's kind of the centerpiece is there's no specific quid pro quo. Um, even though there might have been things of value received, there's good reason for that, and it wasn't because... Senator Mendez and these conspirators were on the take. Mm. Okay, uh, and so finally and quickly, help us understand why they are the defense team that is invoking Taylor Swift in this latest defense filing. She's everywhere, you can't make it up. Um, essentially equating that what they did was no different than asking a celebrity to intervene to help um, in an outcome of a situation? Yeah. I. I you know, I, I don't have much to add to that other than obviously Taylor Swift didn't, you know, take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and act in the best interest of constituents that elect you. So I guess that's all I have to say about that. It is cute. You often see things like that in, in filings. Um, all of, you know, judges are trained to kind of see past that and really just study the objective criteria that's necessary to determine whether a motion ought to be granted or not. So the next step will be oral argument, and then, you know, I'm sure there'll be some extensive coverage in that regard, and we'll see what the court does. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Chris Grimisioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good afternoon.
International efforts to broker a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas fell apart today after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly pulled his negotiating team from the mediation in Cairo, blaming what he called Hamas's delusional demands in a post on social media site X. In a dramatic raid this week, Israeli forces were able to rescue two hostages in Gaza. In the process, the Gaza Health Ministry says the military operation killed more than 60 Palestinians, including women and children. The latest offensive by the IDF is escalating frustrations here at home. According to NJ Advance Media, two activists managed to work their way into an event at the governor's mansion Monday night, confronting both Governor Murphy and First Lady Tammy Murphy face-to-face, -face, calling on them to disband the New Jersey-Israeli Commission. The governor apparently texting staffers he was, quote, white-hot mad over the incident. It's not the first time political events have been interrupted by pro-Palestine protests. Today, the Rutgers chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine held a rally in opposition to the recent airstrikes in Rafah, causing Palestinians today to flee the southern city, where some 1.4 million people have been seeking refuge. Ted Goldberg is at the rally now with the latest. Ted. Brianna, as Israel considers a ground invasion in Rafah, some students at Rutgers are calling for their school to divest from Israel. Israeli leaders say Rafah is a stronghold for Hamas, but the Rutgers chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine say this could lead to a genocide. This is a systematic extermination of the Palestinian people through bombing, invasion, and man-made famine. Anybody paying attention can see on the surface that the ruling institutions of the United States are complicit in this genocide. Students for Justice in Palestine would not speak to us directly for this story. They've had a tumultuous relationship with Rutgers and were temporarily suspended for their protests earlier this year. Today's protest featured artwork created by children in Gaza, inspired by the war over the last four months. Different student groups spoke on campus today, drawing a crowd and criticizing Israel and America's relationship with them. The American ruling class backed them unconditionally as they continue to profit off of weapon sales that slaughter children. Yay! And that the American ruling class uses Israel as an economic foothold in the Middle East. Four unions representing faculty at Rutgers have called for a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza, though not all of them have called for divestment. In response to this story, Rutgers told us that members of the university community who want to see divestment should submit divestment requests, which are then considered by the university's Joint Committee on Investments. Brianna? Okay, thank you, Ted. Lawmakers are being urged to revamp the state's parole system. 
which a new report from the New Jersey Office of the Public Defender calls fundamentally flawed and broken. The office finds inmates have a lack of legal representation at all stages of the parole process, are being denied parole despite having near-perfect records, or get their parole revoked not because they've committed a new crime, but because they're unable to find stable housing or a job. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. The parole board has more power than the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, the police officers. Al Tariq Witcher and other members of the returning citizen support group remember how they felt standing before Jersey's parole board with no lawyer, no advocate, not even a copy of the evidence in their file. It's like you're going in front of a firing squad. <laughs> you, you don't know what's going to happen. You're going in to plead for your life. I feel, personally, I thought I was going to die in prison. Honestly, I thought I was going to die in prison. Raymond Jackson served 25 years, had a sterling prison record, volunteering with AIDS groups, hospice, and palliative care programs. His parole got denied. It's absolutely a dice roll. No ifs, ands, and buts about that. It's just how to feel that day. When a parolee goes before the parole board, they're essentially procedurally naked. They don't have counsel, and it really is an adversarial proceeding. Joe Russo is an assistant New Jersey public defender who wrote the latest revised parole project report on the system. It shows that despite an expectation of release in parole hearings, only about 53 percent of cases were granted parole in 2020, 40 percent in 2019, and about 43 percent in 2018. Russo calls the process a stacked deck. For example, the board does not share confidential reports with defendants. You're being deprived of access to the information that the parole board is using against you, including, for example, psychological reports. The report notes board members don't take age into account, but should, because older parolees rarely reoffend. Instead, the board weighs intangibles like a defendant's remorse, including complaints that they haven't apologized to victims. Problem is, they can't. It's against the rules and regulations for you to write the victim and express your remorse but yet they use this as an excuse to deny guys parole. The parole board has too much power. Chino Ortiz served 30 years. He ticked off reasons some defendants got denied parole, no home address, no ID card. And if the parole board thinks applicants might commit more crimes if they're released, it can add extra years, called hits, to an inmate's sentence. And that's too much power when you're giving people not one hit, not two hits, not three hits, but sometimes four and five hits. The legislature needs to address this inequity, this injustice that has been going on too long. It's very defeating to go before the pro board and get a substantial hit and knowing you're not gonna be able to be seen for potential release for, for years to come. So that's very, very defeating. Russo says the report also shows deep inequities. Black inmates comprise 59% of Jersey's prison population, but only 15% statewide. And when parolees are accused of violations, the only proceedings where they can get a lawyer, 73% of those sent back behind bars are people of color. What does it say about the system? that it's broken and that it needs to be reimagined. Those are the stories that we hear over and over again. New Jersey's public defender says she's well aware of the grassroots push to keep inmates locked up in the name of reducing crime. She says it shouldn't be a choice of prison or parole. I think there needs to be some fundamental change to our current parole system. Um, things like having legal counsel when you're going up for a parole decision 
um, things like really investing in reentry. Her office sent a copy of the report to the board, which told us the state parole board's unable to offer comment as the revised reports currently under review by the board. The public defender will now get to work drafting legislation designed to enact some of the reforms recommended in the report and hopefully fix the system. In Newark, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. A years-long legal battle over a needle exchange program in Atlantic City is over. The Oasis Harm Reduction Center will stay open and its future is now protected after a settlement was reached with the city, declaring the city council's recent ordinance to remove the needle exchange from town null and void. As senior political correspondent David Cruz reports, it's seen as a major victory for harm reduction advocates statewide. This is what we need. This is what we need more of. This is what works. And so everyone in New Jersey is better off because of this decision. Jenna Malore of the New Jersey Harm Reduction Coalition is among the many advocates calling the settlement of the years old suit with the city of Atlantic City a game changer for those suffering from drug use disorders, their families, and the people who dedicated themselves to helping them. This is a chronic health condition that deserves chronic uh, our long-term health support. And so people, everyone in New Jersey is better off when people struggling with their drug use have safe, evidence-based places to get support. The South Jersey AIDS Alliance had filed suit in 2021 after the city council tried to shut down Oasis, a harm reduction center, HRC, that offers clean needle exchanges and other services. But Georgette Shelton of the Alliance which runs the center, said the parties worked together on a settlement, which the city approved in late January and a judge okayed last week. She said the result will mean more HRCs across the state. 30 sites overall, and that's between um, fixed sites, so like Oasis, which, you know, people come to us, mobile sites, and then also mail delivery. Shelton says Oasis sees just over a thousand clients a day a clear indication that the need remains high. There have already been over 250 suspected overdoses in the state this year. But advocates note that New Jersey is one of the few states showing a reduction in 2023 over the previous year, which they attribute to service providers like Oasis. We not only provide a, a harm reduction center that gives out Narcan and syringes, we also have case management for folks who are HIV positive. We have nursing services for HIV testing, hepatitis C and STI testing. The city's hand was forced when the legislature passed a law in 2022 that gave the state authority to determine whether and where HRCs can open. Officials in Atlantic City say they've contended all along that their opposition to OASIS was more about the need to share the burden of providing services. Councilman Kaleem Shabazz says expanding the number of sites and spreading them around is welcome. I hope that that happens sooner rather than later because as an elected official, I see the problems uh, that the drug uh, situation brings on our families on our cities, on our communities. So we need that sooner rather than later. Our position is, is that Atlantic City should not be the only help point uh, because it's not just an Atlantic City problem. 
it's a state problem. In fact, it's a national problem. And New Jersey has taken one step towards becoming part of the solution, even if it took a couple of years to get pointed in the right direction. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. Well, the days of isolating after testing positive for COVID-19 may soon be over. According to the Washington Post, the CDC is considering easing its guidelines for how long people should quarantine after receiving a positive test for the virus. Under newly proposed recommendations, Americans will no longer have to isolate for five days before returning to work or school. Instead, they can return to their routines depending on symptoms and can get back out in the public once their fever free for at least 24 hours without medication. It's a huge shift as the pandemic recedes. For more on what this means, I'm joined by Montclair State University epidemiologist Stephanie Silvera. Stephanie Silvera, always good to talk to you. I want to ask you first about why we're seeing this shift in the rationale behind how long we need to isolate, um, what constitutes needing to isolate, what's changed? So I think there's two things that have really changed. One is that um, in the last peak for COVID that we saw, hospitals essentially were not overwhelmed the way we had seen them in previous COVID seasons. And so if we're looking at this from a capacity perspective, our hospitals were not at maximum or over their maximum capacity to deal with people. There are fewer people who are hospitalized and deaths are down. I think the other aspect of this is people simply are not testing as much. So we know that people are out and about living their lives and are not necessarily adhering to the guidelines that currently exist. But we still have such a low uptake on folks who have gotten boosters, who continue to get boosters. Are we at the point from a public health standpoint that we've reached enough herd immunity um, that this is a safe way to go? So I would argue from a public health perspective, this actually is not the best way to provide guidance. And I know a lot of people will make the comparison to cold and flu and that we don't you know, enforce isolation for people with the flu for five days. Uh, my sort of counter argument to that is maybe we should, that we could reduce a lot of death and illness and impact on the, a negative impact on the economy if we ask people with these highly contagious respiratory illnesses to isolate or at a very minimum mask when sick if they have to go to school or work. Yeah, we know it certainly cut down on the amount of viruses being shared among us uh, in the workplace at schools when people have taken those precautions. So does it raise an eyebrow then that so far, at least in the preliminary information we have, there's no talk about mask wearing during that time uh, after testing positive but being asymptomatic? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that has gotten lost in the conversation is that the isolation period went from 14 days to 10 days to five days. But even after the five days, the recommendation or the guidance was to continue to wear a mask for an additional five days after you got out of isolation. And so the fact that the conversation about masking when ill has completely dropped off is really concerning because we are putting people who are going to be spreading their virus um, back out into the world with no precaution. I'm also thinking, Stephanie, about places like nursing homes and other medical facilities where you have these um, medically frail and vulnerable patients. What do you think about these recommendations being used there? Does it put those folks at greater risk when New Jersey, anyway, is still dealing with some of those repercussions? 
Absolutely. And I think that what we may need to see is um, sort of tiered or differential guidance for different locations. I think in medical spaces where individuals might be medically frail or at higher risk, we need to have a different set of precautions in place. The CDC, I don't have to tell you, faced a lot of scrutiny when they changed the guidelines, specifically down to the five days of isolation. There were folks who accused the agency of looking at the economy and getting people back to work as the real metric there. Uh, is there room for that argument to be made here uh, based on where we're at now? I think that there are some arguments to be made about the impact that this has on individuals and families. So thinking about having to keep a child out of school for five days and isolate and the impact that has on parents who may then have to stay home with them. So some of this is reflecting the reality of what we've seen, but there needs to be a balance. I think that taking them away entirely ignores the risk for some individuals. Stephanie Silvera is an epidemiologist with Montclair State University. Stephanie, thanks so much. Thank you. In our spotlight on business report tonight, there's no love for rideshare drivers on this Valentine's Day. At least that's what Uber and Lyft workers argued during a national strike by thousands of ride hailing and delivery workers. They're demanding higher pay, changes to their working conditions and improved safety conditions. In our area, the work stoppage affected passengers looking for rides midday at Newark and Philadelphia International Airports. But there were protests at 10 major airports across the country today, including in Chicago, Miami, Austin and Pittsburgh. The drivers say they're being mistreated by the app companies, having to work 80 hours a week in some cases to get by. For their part, Uber and Lyft maintain they pay fair wages and are working to improve the driver experience. Earlier this month, Lyft began guaranteeing drivers will get 70% of their fares each week. Still, though, if you're looking to order takeout for your Valentine's dinner, you might want to have a backup plan. Food delivery drivers say they're planning to turn their apps off from 5 to 10 p.m. tonight as part of the protest. On Wall Street, stocks bounced back after taking a hit from yesterday's inflation data. Here's how the markets closed today. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Happy Valentine's Day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.